My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Stephen Cope. I am really excited about this one. In fact, I just finished recording it, and I don't often have time to record these intros right after the fact, but I'm in the energy right now. Stephen is the author of a number of books that have, I can speak for myself, and I sense perhaps for many others, but certainly for myself, his writing has had a profound impact on how I relate to my sense of purpose and calling in the world. He's the author of Yoga and the Quest for the True Self, Soul Friends, The Deep Power of Human Connection, uh, and for me personally, the maybe the most impactful book until his most recent book, which we talk about today, but The Great Work of Your Life, which is an examination of the Hindu concept of Dharma or life calling or sacred vocation that is represented in the ancient text of the Bhagavad Gita. And um, Stephen's latest book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, deepens and and expands and in a way really like sharpens, at least that's my experience, sharpens this question. What am I to do? What is it that I can do? What am I called to do? In the face of a dilemma that seems pervasive, that seems to be drawn as a line in stone, where am I to stand? And Stephen brings back in the Bhagavad Gita and this exploration of eight different people over the course of the past uh, about 240 years who have shown shown us what it looks like to answer that question. Where am I to stand? What am I, me specifically meant or called to do in the face of these deep, pervasive, social, cultural, spiritual dilemmas that our species has faced and will continue to face for perhaps all of our existence as a species, but certainly in the decades and centuries to come. And Stephen looks at that question through a relationship to one of the most pervasive dilemmas in um, American life and also certainly in other cultural life, which is this dilemma of colonialism, enslavement, subjugation, oppression, racism. The book is worth a read in its entirety. And a part of me wishes that uh, we could have just kind of like taken each of the eight people he profiles, people like... Henry David Thoreau and, and Mahatma Gandhi and Harriet Beecher Stowe 
and Charles Russell Lowell. Each chapter and the lesson embedded in each chapter is worth its own hour long, two hour long, full day conversation. But what Stephen does so beautifully is, is weave these individual journeys, some of which are so different, into a tapestry that points us all towards the possibility that whether or not our lives are quote unquote famous or big or grand, whether or not we're playing on these stages we've co-created, the political sphere, the public sphere, the celebrity sphere that we often get so obsessed with, like in the sphere of our families and in the sphere of our communities, of the people who we share livelihoods and lives with, there is an opportunity to, to stand for what the quiet inner voice inside each, each of us is asking us to stand for. And if we're willing to make that stand, to listen to that voice, despite however much fear or doubt it brings up in other parts of us, there is a possibility for a deep sense of fulfillment that can carry through not just our lifetime, but, but many lifetimes that we are in fact, all of us, a part of a great human story of survival and evolution and co-creation. So I hope this conversation helps you connect to that possibility that you are participating in something that has existed long before you and will also carry on long after you. And that's the beauty. That's not something to retreat from or be afraid of, but rather something to dive into wholeheartedly. We didn't spend much time talking about the Bhagavad Gita itself. Um, he anchors all of these human beings in that text and his sort of in interpolation of that text. That is itself well worth a read. If you read his previous work, The Great Work of Your Life, which also weaves together stories of amazing human beings finding their calling and weaves that together with the Bhagavad Gita, then you'll find in these two books wonderful companions. And maybe the first book, uh, The Great Work of Your Life, is in a sense a invitation into that question, what is my life meant for? What in particular about me needs to be expressed? And this second book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, is a deepening of that question. And what about what I can express might be in service of what the world needs right now? So let's get settled in. And hear what Stephen has for us. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hey, Andy. Very nice to be with you. Are, are you still Andy or now Andrew? How should I call you? I, uh, we'll go with Andy. That works great. Andy. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I've always known you as Andy. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for checking. Yeah. Boy, um, I feel a lot of excitement and, and gratitude to be here with you right now. And I've told you this personally, but I, I want to sort of say it to everyone who might be listening that your writings and your teachings seem to consistently find me when I most need them. Uh, starting with your amazing book, The Great Work of Your Life, which you, your most recent book deepens into and builds on. And uh, I'm really excited to explore these threads of purpose and calling and 
identity and meaning that you engage with so wholeheartedly. Thanks, Andy. And while we're doing gratitudes, during the, well, before we started recording, we did a little meditation together. And I was just feeling this profound sense of gratitude for you and the next generation. We're mm. so beautifully, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the grandpa figure now, <laughs> but you, you guys are picking this up. I mean, just so everybody knows, I, I guess you were at Harvard School of Ed when I met you, right? That's right. Yeah, that's you right. You were a grad right. student and just the brilliant way that you've picked it up. And, you know, at my age, you get uh, like, it, it's just so encouraging to, to feel people taking the baton in the, in the relay race that is the mm. kind of education that we mm. do. And so mm. Mm. I just love that you've, you've, t- you've taken the baton so beautifully. Oh, that really means a lot to me. I, uh, gosh, there's so, maybe I'll actually name, and this might be a really lovely way into our conversation. I'll name that, that one of the ways these days I, when I have access to it, that I source a lot of meaning and a lot of purpose is when I'm able to zoom out enough to see that, what you're calling this baton race, this kind of way in which the work, uh, the, the, the possibility of work to unfold over lifetimes and generations, as opposed to this sort of what I often experience in our culture is this intense urgency around things that, that from a certain perspective often don't feel very important and often don't seem to have that kind of sort of lineage or legacy associated with them. So I just feel it really, it's really meaningful for me to hear you sort of notice that and name it. And uh, it feels true for me. I feel a sense of participating in a much wider and deeper kind of concourse of these streams that, that you have helped me helped open the doorway to me. Well, that's so inspiring to me. Paradoxically, just before um, we logged on to Zoom, I, well, I'll tell you a, what isn't a very well-kept secret, but one of my great Dharma heroines is, is Queen Elizabeth II. Um, and very often I will watch a little snippet of her before I do something where I need inspiration. Mm. And so I just watched a, a YouTube where she was dedicating the rebuilding of the great cathedral in, in York Minster, York Minster Cathedral, because it had been, part of it had burned down. Mm. And it had been rebuilt by craftsmen um, who all did their little piece of this great cathedral. Mm. The whole south transept, I believe, collapsed, mm. rather like Notre Dame. And so, but, but this congregation was filled with these craftspeople who had given their lives to just a little part of cre- recreating that mm. cathedral. And, and in the service, they were also dedicating this service of Thanksgiving to the craftsmen who built it in, in 1285 or whatever, for decades and decades it took to build this magnificent structure. And so I, I come. I came into this with this sense of perspective, and, mm. Mm. and um, mm. yeah, mm. interesting. Mm. You know, there's a there's a way in which um, that sparks for me this kind of uh, if I were to imagine myself into that into this identity as a craftsperson, right? Like, and 
And this show is, is sort of an expression of that. This, this podcast is an expression of that. Like there's a way in which you don't, the only way you build something is brick by brick. That's right. That's right. And, and if you don't know the cathedral you're building, if you don't know why you're laying the bricks, it can start to feel like hard, heavy, lonely labor. But there's yeah. something really consoling and nourishing for me as you just share that story about like imagining myself in that, that, that stance of like this brick that I'm putting here is an expression of a long line of knowledge and practice that's going to make something beautiful for that will last for centuries for people's spiritual nourishment and well-being. That's really cool. This point of view that we're talking about now saves us from the narcissism of our age, mm. the notion mm. that, that we have to be extremely, that we have to be important, that we have to be bigger than life, that we have to be celebrities um, it, it saves us from that, and that's really important to be saved from because mm. Mm. The, the, the notion that we're dedicating our lives to I, me, and mine, my great books, my beautiful work, it's just too small. It's too teeny. We don't want to be trapped in that, but we, we very much are trapped in that. Um, and... Uh, so I love to take the craftsman approach in, in all my work. So I just finished this book. It just came out two weeks ago. Started another book. It's what I do. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, uh, it, it's what I do. I write. So I will probably keep writing until they carry me out. And, and um you know, it's not because I'm the world's greatest writer or because I make a, a million dollars doing it. It's just, it's, it's my craft. It's what I do. It's what I'm dedicated to. Um, in my, in my first book on Dharma, the great work of your life, I, I profiled Camille Corot, the great land, French landscape painter and, yes. and talked about the, the difference between what we call deliberate practice which is craftsmanship and the idea of the big personality, right? The, the artist as big personality mm, mm, and Corot mm. embodied the sense of the craftsman. And he, he worked well into his eighties, just poking away a little bit every day. And I, I try to stay in that zone. I don't always, but that's the zone I, I love. Uh. Yeah. I love that zone. And uh, although Corot is maybe not as well-known as some of the more well-known, bigger-than-life artists, uh, his contemporaries and, and, and many who came after him were like, oh, like, there, there's no one better, right? Like, there's, some, there's, for folks who are inside of a particular craft, there's a, there's a kind of respect for craft that transcends any personality. And, and the, what you're talking about for me, just like, feels so aspirational and also accessible in a way that the kind of big, larger than life, me, 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 look how great I am stuff just, no. just depletes me. Like I, I, I can connect to parts of me that want to be loved and be, right. be all of that. And then I just, as I pay attention to that need, it's so depleting and I can't, I can't oh. stay in the, I can't stay in the craft as effectively yeah, yeah. if I anchor in that. That's exactly right. So I'm, I'm in this moment two weeks after a new book comes out. This is my sixth book. And I, I have to admit, there's a part of me that wants it to be admired. I want to be admired. 
Yeah. I want to be liked. I want people to say, oh, he's brilliant. And that doesn't get me anywhere. Yeah. I, yeah. I am. I do have a heightened awareness of it right now because when you send a baby out into the world, you want the world to like your baby. The way <laughs> you do, right? And um, it's a trap. It's not good. Uh, the Buddha said fame is the deadliest poison. And mm. there was a reason. There's a reason for that. It, it takes you out of your capacity to be fully in the moment and in your craftsmanship. And it takes you into this fantasy zone yeah, that's yeah. so, it's so hardwired into us now. Mm. So, so we sort of, we sit, it feels to me like we collectively, and this might, this, uh, there's a part of me, it's like, it's hard to generalize, but I'm going to attempt to sort of, we're pointing towards something that I think many people from many walks of life can relate to, which is this feeling that paradoxically our lives could be a lot more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like you said, that we don't have to be important and famous for that to be true, that there's some, there's some way in which the sort of shallowness and shininess of much of our culture, the urgency and the gratification of much of it just keeps like it's like keep the returns just keep diminishing and keep diminishing and keep diminishing. And there's this sort of longing and sadness and, and, and pull towards like, where might I find meaning? And, and that seems to me to be one of the central pillars of your work is an, an engagement with that question. Does, does that, does that resonate for you? It absolutely is. I mean, look, the, the fulfillment it's, it's interesting. We're in this, this very interesting conversation in, in our contemplative world that you and I mm. share about. There's a, there's a certain dichotomy between happiness and fulfillment. Mm. Mm. So we're focused, very focused on happiness right now. And that's good. Daniel Gilbert's book and so many great books on happiness. Um, happiness is a mind state. Right. Happiness is a mind state that comes and goes. Mm. Mm. And um, fulfillment is something different. Fulfillment has all different colors of emotion in it. Happiness, sadness, frustration. Mm. It's got everything mm. in it. Mm. Um, and, and for me, it's a much bigger thing to aspire to. Than, and happiness is wonderful. You know, the, the Buddha was called the happy one. And yes, that's true. The great... Um, the great psychologist whose name nobody can pronounce, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. And I think I got that right. Yeah, I, really I think that's that right. Name. Yeah, or close enough. Yeah. Csikszentmihalyi, who's I think still in Southern California at UCLA, um, and was the, the dude who gave us flow and the, the beautiful books on flow state. Um, he did an interesting experiment. He, he was interested in this question of happiness and fulfillment. And, so he wired a bunch of people up, a, a fairly large cohort, with beepers, and he sporadically beeped them and gave them a little very brief questionnaire about that, that was meant to ascertain their, their degree of happiness in the moment. Mm. Right mm. At the beginning of the, the um, experiment, he 
he asked them to describe when they thought they were happiest. And, and to a person, they said, you know, I'm happiest when I'm hanging out with the family and kind of in leisure time and I'm watching my favorite TV program or I'm in my pool or whatever. So he wanted to test that. So he did this experiment. And what he found was people were actually happiest when they were deeply involved in some endeavor to which they felt called and for which they felt some um, capacity, some mastery. People are most fulfilled and indeed happiest mm. when they're deeply mm. involved mm. in their calling, in their work, in their work in this life. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be grandiose at all. If it's, if it's building a stone wall, that's what it is. Yeah. So I just went through this, this, this book that I just finished kicked my ass in, in ways that I couldn't believe because as I explained to you earlier, it, it started as one thing and ended as another. And now I look back on that, that the last year of writing and see how profoundly fulfilled I was. Mm. I was working mm. every day. I was digging mm. as deep as I could mm. I had to throw out a whole bunch of chapters that were really, I thought, good. They're on the cutting room floor here. I had to rewrite my agent, kind of my brilliant agent, literary agent, became my editor and and kicked my butt. And now I look back on that as a golden time. That year, was it happy? It was difficult. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely not always happy. And I was sometimes mad and confused. But with perspective now, I see that just as Csikszentmihalyi suggests, I was happiest and most fulfilled when I was in the middle of my work, my calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I, so you sent me a copy of the book. Uh, it's called The Dharma in Difficult Times. And I'm, I have my hands on it right now. I read it in just two or three days and I, you you might not be able to see this, but there are just like dog ears on so many, Ah. on so many pages. Um, Like I I sort of, in part I was dog earing because I knew I would talk to you, but now like the thought of even trying to pick one of these out of so many feels a bit overwhelming, but I do just want to name that like this uh, book feels like to me, having read the great work of your life, having read your book, um, soul friends, having read, your book, Yoga, uh, um, Blank on them, Yoga and the Quest, Quest for Truth. For truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having read all of these different books, this one uh, had a sharpness to it, a, mm. um, a sort of like, like, like the way like a katana is just sort of folded and folded and folded to get to this really fine edged point. And I felt like all of my experience was that like all of the other work that you had done mm-hmm. made this possible. And I wonder how you relate, relate to that as, as sort of a, that's really, that's interesting. That's an interesting observation. Um, we definitely build on our, on our, our previous work, you know, in, in this regard, and I'm not about to compare myself to Beethoven, but (laughs) Beethoven was, was so interesting because if you know his nine symphonies, you know, that each one of them was profoundly different. A lot of composers will, they'll find what they do well, and then they'll just do it over and over again. But that's not what Beethoven did. He he reinvented himself between each work. Mm-hmm. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, in the ninth, he was reinventing the whole symph- the whole symphonic thing. And, you know, and there's some question about whether it went really well. Like it, it was so experimental that, that some of it was maybe not his very best symphony, but he was determined to keep growing all the mm. time. Mm. And mm. I've, I, that's just what happened to me. I, I start a book, I write a book because I have some kernel of a question, something that's eating at me, the, something that I need to solve for myself. Mm. So clearly mm. in my last book, Soul Friends, Deep Human Connection, it was about friendship. I, yeah. that, that little kernel was rubbing at me. And, um, and, and so, uh, the, your, the question you ask is, is just, just the, a, the something like, book. like the, the, I'm sort of in, as someone who's been with much of your work, maybe not all of it, but much of it, I'm in touch with the way in which this book feels both like a, a natural evolution of like a sort of synthesis of these many different kernels of mm-hmm. Dharma and purpose and friendship and sort of mm-hmm. spiritual, uh, spiritual quests or spiritual journey. Like all of these different pieces that I'm aware of seem to be kind of arriving into the DNA of this really very lean and powerful book. And I'm, and so I'm just wondering how that, as you look at your larger journey, I'm curious how you're relating to like, maybe, maybe the question is what was the kernel of this book and how does that connect to some of the other, other kernels that have been planted over the years? Well, that's good. So there are two currents or there are two questions on the floor. One is the kernel and the other is, um, is the previous question. So I'll start with the kernel. And, and you and I talked about this a tad. This book started before COVID, before the world fell apart, as we know it. And the kernel then was Colonel K-E-R-N-E-L. Yeah, yeah like the uh, little seed, the little... Yeah, the seed. I had had a very disastrous and unexpected experience with one of the large institutions that I'm involved with in my career, and I was treated in a way that I thought was very shabby. And mm. um, and I wasn't sure how to respond. I, I wanted to go to war about it. Mm. And, mm. Um, and all my friends said, no, I don't go to war. Just let it, let it go. But I, I was stuck with how do I act in this situation? And so that was the question. And I realized, oh, that's Arjuna's question on the night before the great battle of Kurukshetra in mm. the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna's question is, how do I act? How do I know how to act? And so um, I, I thought, I'm going to look at the Gita and see if there's any specific advice there about how to act when the world treats you badly. And, and honestly, I've been such a privileged dude my whole life the experience of having been treated really unfairly was, I don't want to say brand new to me, but at this level, it was kind of new. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, mm-hmm. it, it allowed me to connect with a world where everybody's treated badly all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just, this is just the human experience. The world is unfair. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this book started out as me coming to grips with that. And then, of course, the world fell apart with COVID and 
all of the masks that that the pandemic ripped off the way we function mm. um mm. and you know the mask of who's important who who's really maintaining the society uh, who are the essential workers well that was an interesting one wasn't it mm. um mm. and of course everything that flowed out of george floyd and the the wonderful new awareness of social justice that's that's flooded our culture and society now and mm. so i got through the first year of the book and then covid hit and then i realized oh got to rewrite this book i the yeah. world is so different now mm. i cannot send that old book into the world it's got to address the current situation mm. so mm. um so that kernel that was in me about unfairness and stuff. And it got projected into the whole world. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in this particular book, as you know, I got particularly interested in how people over the decades and centuries, going back to 1830, I, I chose eight different characters who were faced with some dilemma that had to do with racism and slavery and its horrendous aftermath, Mm. starting with Henry David Thoreau, who, of course, um, was rabidly uh, against slavery and the Mexican-American War and the way Native Americans were treated. And what did he do? Uh, He wrote his brilliant essay on civil disobedience that changed the world. And then I moved systematically through the decades and years all the way to the current time with Ruby Sales, but each character is dealing with a dilemma that has something to do with our country's major dilemma, which is we say that all men are created equal in this culture, and yet that's obviously not the case. Mm. Mm. Um, Mm. And so, uh, yeah, that's the kind of origin story of the book. It's incredible. And I just... um... I want to name that what was really one of your gifts, one of your many gifts is your capacity to bring to life people from history uh, Mm. as real live, like searching, struggling, Mm -hmm. risk-taking, doubting, faithful, like all of the, the humanity of these figures, some of whom people's names might know and others who they might be hearing of for the first time. Yep. And uh, I just found, I found myself really, really nourished and connected to the to sort of the human question of what is it, what a, what can I do once I notice this this thing that other people around me, people who I love and care for mm-hmm. in some cases, my family mm-hmm. maybe in some cases, like what do I do when I see mm-hmm. something that other people seem unwilling or unable to see? And, uh, and each, what I like so appreciate about this book and the way that you bring each of them to life is the answer to that question for each of them is so uniquely the, their answer rather than in the face of this problem, this is what one should do. It's, it's rather in the face of my life in this problem, what am I to do? And that really felt like that, like landed with me in a really powerful way. Wow. You're a very incisive reader, Andy. That's uh, that nothing has made me happier than to hear just what you said. Um, Mm. Because 
as a writer, the challenge of this book was to tell these stories, some of which are known moderately and, and some of which are not known, to tell them in a way that that brought the dilemma alive and and the dilemma into the center of the picture and the way in which they resolved it in, in all in idiosyncratic ways. Um, I actually, I fell in love with every single person mm. that, I, mm. that I wrote about, mm. fell in love with, and didn't know enough before about Charles Russell Lowell or Sojourner Truth or Marian Anderson or Ruby Sales. But um, the question that you just raised once we become aware of a dilemma, I, I say in the book, there are three kinds of dilemmas. Dilemmas that are like lines etched in water, drawn mm. in water. Dilemmas that are line etched in sand. And dilemmas mm. that are like lines etched in rock. Mm. And slavery and, and, and racism and xenophobia, etc., are like lines etched in rock in our culture. And once you become aware of how pervasive and unjust and wrong this is, then the question does become, as it did for Arjuna, what do I do? Yeah. What part of this fight is my fight? And so in the background of this book, I was really wrestling with that, you know, and I, I very much took heart from Thoreau's solution, which was, so just to, to tell that story a little yeah. bit. So yeah. Thoreau lived in, in, in rural Massachusetts in the 1830s and 40s. And, and um, he was kind of considered a ne'er-do-well in the little town of Concord. <laughs> I love, I I love that about, yeah, like you bring yeah, that to life I mean, so beautifully. Thoreau, it's like, oh, there's Henry again. <laughs> there's Henry again. You know, Thoreau, his father made pencils. And by the way, really good pencils, the best pencils in the country at the time. But so they thought of, of this guy as a kind of nut job who was on the, 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 the margins of society. And he'd gone to Harvard where he was brilliant, but he couldn't keep a job. He wouldn't go to church. He hung out with all the guys in, in the woods. Um, and... Yet he read deeply, deeply. He read mm. everything. And that was in the 1830s when you could read everything. And so he became profoundly aware of this dichotomy, this dilemma in, in early American society of we say all men are created equal, and yet the Constitution doesn't say that. And the way we live doesn't say that. His Some of his friends were, were Native Americans. And he was super aware of how they'd been treated mm, mm. and whose land that Concord was built on. Mm. Um, mm. And so he became profoundly aware of, of the fact that he must have some responsibility in this. He mm. must have some responsibility. And what, what was it and what would he do? And he had, of course, everybody knows this story. He had kind of, mildly refused to pay his poll tax for many years, I think at least a decade. And it wasn't a lot of money, but it was his rather perfunctory resistance to the way the government was behaving. And at one point the, the tax collector called him on it and said, you know, either pay up or you're going to go to jail. Well, he said, no, 
this is my this is my response, my reaction to a government that's behaving badly. I mm. won't pay it. Mm. So he went to jail. Mm. Now, he was only there one night. His, his <laughs> aunt, you know, the, the Thoreaus were a well-known family in Concord. His aunt put on a veil and snuck to the jail and paid his tax. <laughs> so they could get that crazy nephew out of jail. And, um, and then he spent the next 18 months pondering this question, okay, how, how should I act in this situation? What's my responsibility? What's my role? And he did it as a writer because he was a writer. That was his dharma. That was his craft. You and I talked earlier about craft. What yeah. was his craft? His craft was he was a thinker and he was a writer and he was a speaker. So he took up his pen and he wrote this brilliant essay on civil disobedience. Okay, he spent one night in jail. That was an act of civil disobedience. But he wrote this essay that then influenced centuries, generations of men and women to undertake civil disobedience all the way from uh, you know, before the Civil War to, um, to Gandhi and to Martin Luther King and to the present day. Um, and what I take from that, Andy, is uh, he, he didn't believe that he had to solve every problem in the world. Mm. Mm. He didn't believe that he had to be this larger-than-life figure. Like one of his best friends was Wendell Phillips, who was a major Unitarian preacher at the time and was a larger-than-life figure, mm. was preaching all over the, the East Coast, and brilliantly so. But Thoreau did not choose that path. He, he said, this is, this is what I can do. This is what I know mm. how to do. This is mm. what I can do. This mm. is my little corner of the world. Mm. I'm going to do what I can to change it. Mm. So he wrote the essay. He gave talks around Concord, which were very controversial. Um, and by the way, his mother and sister were even more rabid anti-abolition uh, than he was. And they founded something in Concord called the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society. Mm. And he was actually radicalized by his mother and sister, oh, right? So cool. Which I love that part of yeah. the story. Somebody's yeah. got to write that book, by the way. Yes. yes. I didn't have time to research it. But in this time when we're really beginning to uncover the the power of women's voices in our world, like in my music world, like the music of Florence Price, for mm. example, that's mm. coming out. Mm. Somebody needs to write the book about, about Thoreau's mother and sister. And I would effect. very much like to read that. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but the, the, if I put a, a point on it, the point would be find your own dharma within your own piece of the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I so, think you're answering the question beautifully and, and just to really underline. And I think this gets at one of the things you do so well in your writing around humanizing these names that at least here, at least in the circles I move in, I, mm -hmm. a lot of people will at the bare minimum recognize the name Henry David Thoreau. And I would, and I would sort of put myself in that camp of like, yeah, I know about Walden and I know kind of a, like sure. I've been to the lake and, and, you know, I've, 
the name is is not certainly a famous name if you right. kind of look in popular culture, but it's a but he's a well known figure, and there's something about about the the knowing that that has a kind of cardboard two dimensionality. There's a sort of like yeah. uh, a bust on a pedestal, a drawing on a drawing on a book cover kind of vibe to it. But then you you actually get to know Thoreau, who, as you so brilliantly point out the way he responded to his sense of injustice was to write this essay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and essentially like he, he would give public readings or lectures of his essay. So he just locally, like he wrote the essay and shared it with, with, with other people in Concord, many of whom were like, yeah, totally knocked over by how, how in, intense he was. Yeah. He was essentially like in his day, kind of a, a, a sort of, a privileged, but a little wacky guy who lived in the woods. Like that was, that was how most people related to him. And yet his sense of self and his sense of purpose was potent enough for him to stay the course, despite any parts of him that might've been, no, maybe I should, maybe I should conform. Maybe, maybe, maybe they are right. You know, it was just like, he was like, no, I'm, I will walk this path to the very end. Even if it means that that people think this, this, or this about me. And that's like, I think that's so powerful to re- be reminded of. Thoreau is not some historical bust on a wall in, in, yeah. in a library. He was this like really earthy, unique, a little bit, you know, a bit of an odd duck and brilliant. Yeah. And he just, and he just, this is his thing to do. Well, and, and the reason it's so pertinent to, to this book and to our discussion is he was profoundly influenced by the Bhagavad Gita and by Indian and Hindu literature in yeah. general. He read widely into it. And, and he uncovered a very important fact about action, which is that um, action, uh, action well taken has a field effect. It has a mm. field. Mm. It has an effect on the entire field around it. Mm. We we have minimized that. And he he says in civil disobedience, if if one man, and of course one man or woman, acts well, acts rightly, he says, no matter how small the beginning, an act well done is done forever. Mm. And mm. this is so important to understand. This is this is the absolute basis of contemplative practice in, mm. in yoga and Buddhism. Is that um, is that how you act? Every act of mind, body, um, you know, mind, body, and speech makes a difference, even if we don't see it in the, in the immediate moment. Um, the this gets down to a, the question that I've really gotten interested in of, of means and ends. So we've we've made it up in our political culture, and nowhere is this more visible than in the response to Trump. That it doesn't matter what the means of the act are, as long as you can get the ends. So, in other words, voting for Trump um, with his autocratic insanity is justified by the fact that we will get our, our party, let's say, let's say the GOP, will get some great judges on the bench, the federal bench, and also on the um, Supreme Court. So the having this guy who, who made a farce and a wreckage of our federal government mm. while he was in office, I think, 
um, can be justified by the fact that the party will eventually get some conservative nominees to the federal bench and the, um, the judiciary. So what Thoreau discovers at the very kernel of contemplative wisdom is no, every act has an effect, a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, every, every effect has a cause. And if you want to be the cause of the world moving in the right direction, then your actions have to reveal that in, in every way. Your, mm -hmm. your actions mm -hmm. are body, speech, and mind. Mm -hmm. And this is radical, really. Even for today, it's radical. Um, but, you know, can you, can you lie in order to get something that you want that you think is, is right? No. And why not? Because it has a detrimental, deleterious effect on your own soul. Yeah. So that... Um, the lie takes on a life of its own, even, even if you do, in the short term, get, get some benefit from it. Exactly right. Yeah. So Thoreau was profoundly affected in his, his questions about action. Um, and he basically said in Civil Disobedience, I'm going to act in the way that my conscience tells me to, the way that I know I must. Mm. And then if I have to go to jail, I have to go to jail. Mm. And, mm. and basically, you know, there's a, there's a famous story about his mentor, Emerson, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, walking by the jail and seeing Thoreau up there and saying, Henry, why are you in jail? And Henry says, yeah, why aren't you in jail? Why aren't you up there with me? Because you say you're against slavery. Well, um, apparently that probably didn't happen, but I love the story anyway. Yeah. Just, uh, why isn't everybody in jail? Yeah. And just maybe that, um, just to play with that for one more minute, um, I'm in touch with some possibility here. Let me see if I can give voice to it. There, there, I'm aware of a part of me that can often justify inaction by saying something like, well, what difference is that going to make? Yeah. And, um, but as you just presence Thoreau's story and this, even, even if it is apocryphal, this interaction between Thoreau and, mm. and Ralph Waldo mm. Emerson, there's a sense of around like, you know, just what, what if every abolitionist and conquer just in that little corner of the world actually all said, we're all going to go to jail right now. Right. Like right. the, the, the jailer would, who's, you know, just a, has family in the neighborhood. It's going to suddenly he, his role is really being put to the test. Suddenly the system, the assumptions that everyone are sharing are being put to the test. And suddenly massive transformation is possible because a few, a, a small group of people say, I am actually willing to go all the way with whatever it is I'm willing to go all the way with. And I'm willing to do it peacefully and I'm willing to do it with integrity, but I'm willing to go all the way. That ripple effect is so potent for people who stand in it. It's so, it's, it's so true, Andy. And, and so, I mean, the, the outcome of this, the Thoreau story is so great. Yeah, because, yeah we have to land on because that. Because what did he do? He, he did what he could do. He wrote powerfully and he spoke powerfully. And then what happened to it? Well, it disappeared. It was in some little journal. Um, and then it disappeared for quite a few years until it was resurrected in the 1860s, I believe. 
Um, after Thoreau died, Thoreau died early on in the Civil War mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how it got resurrected, but it became immortal. Remember his words. Yeah. A job well done, no matter how small the beginning, is immortal. It's It becomes immortal. That's how powerful action is that's aligned with truth. And of course, I start the book with Gandhi because Gandhi was the the guy who, more than anyone else, I think certainly in the 20th century, exemplified the power of, of telling the truth. Yeah. And he called it soul force or satyagrata. Uh, Thoreau called it truth in action, but the power of truth and and the telling of it in, in whatever way you can, through your mm-hmm. art or in your work. or I'm always, Andy, in, in talking to people about Dharma, or and for those who are, who are listening, Dharma means true calling, sacred mm-hmm. location. Um, and it was the very centerpiece of the Bhagavad Gita, the great scripture of, of yoga. Um, now I just totally lost my train of thought. Well, we're, I think you're about to sort of land on this, this uh, the power of soul force or truth in action and, and sort of the way in which Thoreau's initial kind of volley of, of civil disobedience disappeared for a bit. Oh, and yet right. now it's yeah. now it's sort of it is infuses every so many other acts of civil disobedience that have shaped our world. Truth and that, and that's so that calling that, that's that exactly the was, talks about yeah. where I was going like it. Yeah. Truth continues to resonate um, even uh, decades or centuries later. And and so, you know, Thoreau, who was very little read in his own time. So Walden was his great masterpiece, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think there were ever more than 800 or 1,000 copies sold in his lifetime. Oh it wasn't widely read at all. And, and yet it was so powerful, a document. You know, his his mentor, Emerson, had taught him how to write. And he said, Emerson, in teaching Thoreau how to write, said, every sentence should be its own evidence. You see how powerful that is? Every sentence should be so powerful in itself, the words themselves, that it doesn't need to be backed up by citations from other books or any any big scholar. Every sentence should be its own evidence. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and Thoreau, more than any writer in, in in 19th century America, took that on. Yeah, and um, and and he's just an inspiring guy. He, he's so real too. He, you know, he was he was a gnarly guy, and um, <laughs> he was so gnarly. Yeah, he was so so gnarly and so. Uh, resistant to, to local norms. Yeah. He kind of put it in people's faces. Yeah. You got to love the guy. Got it. Well, and, and that, that wisdom, I, I haven't, I don't know if, I don't remember if that's in the book, but just your quote of Ralph Waldo Emerson saying to Thoreau, like every, every sentence should be its own evidence. I there's, if we were to sort of take that deeper into the field you and I are playing in right now. Mm. There's this idea that every act could be its own evidence and should be its own evidence. evidence. Right. And that is, that is that, that's that soul power that Gandhi talked about. And, 
you know, I'm aware in a way that we're sort of dancing through the book without maybe necessarily having oriented people fully to it. But I, I promise I will give some of that orientation when I record the intro. And I maybe just want to say a word or two about like you already mentioned, you sort of were very intentional about kind of working through history with these eight different figures, folks like, um, like Gandhi and Thoreau and Harriet Beecher Stowe, all the way up to, to sort of present day with Ruby Sales, who you've actually been in the same room with in person. Yeah. And, uh, and, and to just really name that the through line, very clearly the through line that you're playing with, with all of these people is that Dharma question that, that Arjuna is sort of desperately asking Krishna to answer like, what the hell these are, I'm you want me to go kill my, my cousins? Like, what do I do? And so I just really want to like underline that that's the through line of this book are people answering in the face of this American dilemma. What do I do? That's right. Yeah. And I, and I want to, I wish we could talk about all eight of them, but, but before, as we have sort of our time boundary, I can see it sort of approaching. And I really am really like the, the two that are in me the most after the book are Sojourner Truth and Marian Anderson. And um, you maybe intentionally put them next to each other in the book, uh, chapter six and chapter seven. Yeah, that's right. And and the reason I'm presencing them right now, as we just go, uh, we've used sort of Thoreau as an exemplar of this question, what can I do for my corner? Um, and, And now here we have two human beings, two black women from different generations, from different eras, who chose very different answers to that question of what can I do in the face of the this legacy of brutality and injustice that has been put upon me and my ancestors and their ancestors before them. And I, and I, maybe in our, as we kind of come towards the end, maybe we could play with that, that yeah. the differences embodied by the shared commitment, both of those human beings. Yeah. I think it's really important. Um, and I, I'm so glad that you picked that up, Andy. Um, so just briefly, um, for those who don't know too much about Sojourner Truth, she she was born into slavery. Um, her name was um, uh, Isabella Bomfrey, and she was one of the thirty thousand people enslaved in New York in the in the early nineteenth century. So we think of slavery as a Southern phenomenon. No, there were thousands, tens of thousands yeah. of enslaved people in New York, the state of. Um, she was one of them, and um, she uh, suffered the entire gamut of the mm. horrors of slavery, mm. rape, and abuse of every conceivable kind. Her, everybody around her died, siblings who, who died, and family who were shipped south, and um, and she was given this one amazing gift from her mother, her mother whom she called Mau Mau, had some brilliant combination of Afrocentric spirituality and Christianity. Mm-hmm. So that Isabella Baumfrey, they called her Belle, as she grew at her mother's knee, learned, learned Christianity, the doctrine, and the stories and the Bible in the most sophisticated possible mm-hmm. way you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean, she mm-hmm. knew more 
about the Bible than most clergy persons did at the time. Yeah. She could, she could um, repeat the stories in a great amount of detail. Um, and at the same time, she had this Afrocentric, powerful spirituality that was about nature and the earth and, um, and truth and telling mm. the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm. So she developed this amazing life of prayer as a young girl. Uh, many of the enslaved young women, and I think men too, would build these huts in the middle of the woods, which were their own refuges, and they could go there. And she, in her, she would go, and she developed this profoundly deep life of prayer mm. as a result of her mother's mm. training her. Can I make one quick connection that just struck me as, yeah. you, as you name that? The first lesson in this book that you embody with uh, through Gandhi is take first, take refuge. First, take refuge. Yeah. And exactly. and then here it is again in her like her own journey. So I just just hit me right now, and I want to name that. That's a great connection, Andy. If if you look at every character in the book, when they encountered their particular dilemma, all of them took refuge in their own way in in a great wisdom tradition. I mean, um, and 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 Isabella Baumfried in a very um, tangible way took refuge in what she learned at her mother's knee mm. and from her own then direct response um, in prayer mm. to her God as she understood God. Mm. And she would go and, to this place in the woods to do that prayer. Is that yeah, to undertake yeah. that prayer? Yeah. They were called rural sanctuaries and mm. it was a thing. It was a thing for enslaved mm. people. And they were just covered over with brush and private and secret. And she could go in there and pray and meditate and and be in a con, a, an amazingly contemplative space. So she had um, later in life she she walked away from slavery at twenty nine at age twenty nine, and um, she then got very involved in a number of spiritual communities. You know that was an, an era when there were a lot of. Um, of ideal communities forming. Usually they were around some form of Christianity. She got very involved in a number of those and got more and more sophisticated and more and more deeply into her own spirituality until she had on Pentecost Sunday, when she was, I think, 40, she had this direct revelation from God uh, that said, okay, Bell, I, I want you to become a prophet, essentially, and I want you to wander the country talking about your own experience of enslavement and your own empowerment and 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 what we should all do about it. And he he gave her the name Sojourner mm. because she was mm. a sojourn throughout the country. Mm. And then she said, I okay, God, I want a second name because everybody has two names. So he gave her truth. <laughs> so she became Sojourner Truth. Mm. Now she was this powerful, strong, tall, lanky woman who had a deep, gravelly, powerful voice. And she sang and she made up her own hymns and her own songs. And she became this amazing order. So she would go from church to church and from village to village, letting her horse decide where they were going to go. She said, <laughs> okay, God, I'm going to let you drive now. So God would drive the cart. She'd end up in the city square, the town square, and she'd start to declaim. She'd start to preach. Well, she became one of the most famous preachers of her time. And 
um, not only would she preach, but she would sing. Very often she would sing her lessons. Hmm. Um, and, and she was so powerful that she would face down these, these crowds and these congregations of pissed off men, especially yeah. clergy who were pissed off that this woman was speaking. And, and very often they would get into theological debates with her and she would always win because she, she knew the Bible better than they did. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Um, she called them little men, little men in black carrying black books, right? <laughs> Um, but her dilemma, I mean, and, ju and just to underline, she was so like, this is, we haven't talked about Marini yet, but just to really point, this is one of the reasons why I was so struck by the juxtaposition, but she is just yeah. Sojourner Truth, uh, not only unafraid of conflict, but right. totally willing to, to provoke it with what, what I experienced is this like deep trust and faith that that conflict would actually serve whatever it is she was speaking to rather than distract for it, exactly. distract from it. She became this fearless warrior yes. and she would stand up in front of crowds of angry men. And um, in, in one famous incident that I tell that the men couldn't believe that she wasn't a man because she was so powerful and so, so articulate. No woman could do that. And so they insisted that women in the audience check out her anatomy just to make sure that she had breasts and she was really a woman because they couldn't believe that. So um, in this one famous moment, she said, okay, I'm a woman here. And she took off her shirt and showed her breasts. And this was a powerful moment. She, she very often used her own body mm -hmm. and the, the whiplashes on her back and the loss of a finger that, that happened in an accident while enslaved. She showed up with this embodied rhetoric that freaked people out. They couldn't believe <laughs> this package, this intelligence, this power, um, this frankness, this, this truth. So yeah. she was into getting into people's faces with who she was and what she'd experienced. Yeah, and I now, found them. I found the moment here where where they've made this request, and the room freezes. Yeah. This is in your book, okay. and of course, like so, the men in the back are like, "Come on, someone check her!" Not not a single woman steps forward to take on this this task, this supposed right. task of like confirming yeah. that she's actually a man in disguise. Yeah, and and she, if it's all right, I'll just read this short passage here. Right. Sojourner Truth now took command. She pulled herself up to her full height and calmly addressed the crowd. Well, children, you know these breasts have suckled many a white babe, and most of these, these babes are grown to adulthood. Well, I dare say they turned out better than the men I see snapping and growling like dogs at the back of this room. The crowd roared its approval. Strain, the man who was kind of leading this provocation, was not pleased. Oh, I have no shame for this black body, children. No shame. Here, I'll show these breasts to the whole congregation. And to everyone's shock, Truth began to unbutton her blouse. A cry went up from the audience. As she pulled down her blouse to expose her breasts, Truth said, Oh, children, I'm not ashamed to bear myself to you. The shame of this moment is on you. Yeah, there you go. <sighs> I mean, this this woman, I uh, I so would love to have known this woman. Yeah. Um, anyway, she she captured my heart. She captured my heart. And by the way, she was born and lived 
you know, just, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 miles from here. Wow. So um, there, there are lots of tales about her in this neck of the woods. But the point you're, tr- you're raising is comparing this. Now, um, just for people to give people context, I start with, I actually start with Gandhi for yeah. reasons that will be obvious. But then I go to Thoreau in the 1840s. Um, and then I go to um, Harry Beecher Stowe, who was, of course, writing the great novel, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin in the 1840s. And then I go to the Civil War, Colonel um, Charles Russell Lowell, who's incredibly inspiring um, abolitionist who fights in the war. Um, And then I go to Sojourner Truth. Then I go to um, Sojourner Truth lived into the way beyond the Civil War and became involved in in women's rights and suffrage. Then I go to Marian Anderson, who Mm -hmm. lived during Jim Crow. And um, Marian... And, and I end with um, Martin Luther King and, and Ruby Sales and Jonathan Daniels. So that's the trajectory from 1830, really, to the present day. But Marian Anderson, who faced the same kinds of dilemmas, being a black woman, having had the experience of Jim Crow, went to Europe, became one of the most important contraltos and singers of her day, mm. Not mm. because she was black, not because, mm. but because she was extraordinary, and um, she was a highly cultured woman, and also had a mother who um, was completely informed by her Christian faith, and a mother who gently, who saw this young girl's amazing gift as a, a singer in in a black choir in a in a Baptist church in New York and helped her to nurture it. And so Marion, um, nurturing this gift all the way to the absolute um, zenith of mm. the musical world, so mm. that Arturo mm. Tosmanini said, there is no other voice like this. I mean, the greats of the world were. Yeah. But she came back to this country, and she was not allowed to sing in major halls in major cities. And this included Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., which was founded and owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Mm. And they said, no black artists can sing here. Now we're in the, um, in the 1920s and 30s in Jim Crow um, South and, or Jim Crow everywhere. Yeah. Um, and she was prohibited from singing there. And, it, this particular situation provoked a huge crisis because Eleanor Roosevelt got involved. Eleanor Roosevelt was in the DAR, as was my own mother, for example, my <laughs> waspy wow. lineage. And Eleanor Roosevelt quit the DAR very publicly and said, you guys screwed up. This is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so she and Franklin Roosevelt um, and the then head of the uh, um, NAACP, Walter White, created a huge event on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where Marian Anderson would, would proceed to sing for 75,000 people with microphones from all over the world. This was on Easter Sunday, I believe, 1936, if I'm not wrong about that. Um, this was one of those moments that changed the world. Uh, the the audience was all the way out to the base of the Washington Monument. 
the next day, the papers were full of this astounding event. And of course, she began with uh, with uh, My Country Tis of Thee, and then she sang great um, Black spirituals and a European repertoire. Um, this chapter is actually about the field effect, the effects yes, yes. that an, an, a, a situation like that has on the whole field. But the point that, that you want to make, and I think is a good one, is Marion says in her autobiography, she says, look, I wasn't a fighter. Like, I wasn't a hand-to-hand combat lady like Sojourner Truth was. Yeah. And so at first, she, she somewhat resisted becoming a symbol but finally, she, mm-hmm. she said, no, whether I like it or not, I am a symbol. She stepped into that role mm-hmm. and she changed the world. But she understood that what was changing the world was really her gift, her mm-hmm. the gift that she had carefully nurtured for, for so many decades. And importantly, in this chapter, I use the, a quote from the Tao Te Ching, the great Tao Te Ching, which says, and this is important to understand, the master sees things as they are without trying to change them. She lets things go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. Okay, what does that mean? Marion Woodman did not believe it was her greatness or um, her self-sacrifice that was going to change things. She was standing at the center of her circle, mm. her dharma, mm. which was her gift mm. and the way that connected to her, her to her spiritual life and to her Christian world and so forth. The master sees things as they are without trying to change them. She lets things go their own way mm. and resides at the center of the circle. So residing at the center of the circle is, I believe, what we all have to do. For me, the center of my circle is my 40-year-long meditation and yoga practice. Mm-hmm. That's where I connect with the still small voice inside that tells me what to do next. Um, so Marion is a is a brilliant exemplar of and and I I I put these two in, in counterpoint, Sojourner and Marion, because they found their role, they found their dharma, they found their calling in in such different ways. Yes. But yes. in both cases, they made a huge impact on on the field around them. Yeah. I mean, as you read that now, I'm in, in touch with a way that I wasn't at first, even as I opened this inquiry with us, that that the the point I'm in that you're that's coming through is in fact, despite so many of the differences between their dispositions and styles and context and background and training, and even just sort of the subtle details of you know, here, uh, Marian Anderson is sort of got this beautiful, high, unbelievable, you know, I mean, just the, one of the greatest voices ever, but it is this musical, ethereal, incredible instrument. And, and Sojourner is this gravelly, powerful depth. You know, there's so many ways that you can kind of on the surface go like these two humans met in the context of their moments showed up so differently. But then you read that that Tao Te Ching piece of just like they each found the center of their circle. They found the center. And, and that's actually the through line of the whole book. Yeah. But the, the reason yeah. I started with Gandhi is that Gandhi is widely viewed as, as a political figure, which he was. But more than that, he was a spiritual and religious figure. His, his whole life was dedicated to, to, as he said, to finding God. 
And mm. so mm. when he was first confronted with the problem of India, when he came back after being in South Africa for 20 years, he himself encountered this dilemma, which was India is a mess. India is a nightmare of colonialism. And what's my role? Is this my mm. fight to fight? And if mm. so, how can I fight it, given the fact that I've been fighting colonialism in the much smaller field of South Africa. And the the lesson I try to teach in that chapter is that what did Gandhi do? He didn't go into the fight at first. He went into meditation. He went into, he, he built an ashram. Mm. He, he spent mm. a year building a spiritual community, which would then become the crucible out of which his actions would arise. So mm. when, when we talk about you know, let things go their own way and, and, and reside at the center of the circle. That's exactly what Gandhi did. Mm. And mm. Gandhi then, through a very sophisticated meditation and chanting um, practice that he had for himself, he refined his connection with the still small voice, which we might call awake mind or um, illumined mind or whatever you want to call it. In, in the yoga scriptures, it's called Vijnana, which means the mind that knows, the mind that mm -hmm. has huge perspective and sees beyond our small human perspective. He had so developed that, that that connection to his awake mind became his steering mechanism through life. He said, I allow the only tyrant I allow in my life is the still small voice within. <laughs> to that, I'm 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 required to obey. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there's a second chapter on Gandhi where I tell the story of the great march to the salt to make sea, where totally counterintuitively he sits and meditates for months and months, and finally comes up with this counterintuitive idea about marching to the sea to make salt. And everybody's like, what, really? That's what you came up with? But then it turns out, of course, to be genius, absolute genius. It freaks out the British. The, the, um, the, the British, uh, what's it called? The ruler of, uh, of the empire, the, um, like the viceroy, yeah. Um, yeah. said no, that that won't make any difference. That little march to the sea. <laughs> well, it blew it blew it apart, actually. Yeah. Yes, there was. And, and I think in the story, in his story, you describe like there's all of his friends. There's like a, a I can't remember the other person's name, but there's like a, a well-renowned poet who's close friends with Gandhi who comes and says, like, yeah. what are you doing? We need to act. And Gandhi says, I'm praying. I'm praying. Yeah, I'm praying. And right, then at some point, he the inner voice, the awake mind says, like, it's the salt. The, yeah. the fact that we have salt on our lands that are, is ours, that is that literally the soil from which we, our people, have grown out of, that is now owned by the British, and we are being right. taxed to yeah. purchase our own salt. And, yeah. the, and the act of rebellion was to say, uh, we're going to start making, we're going to start harvesting our own salt again. And like, and it was, you know, he picks the salt up from the sand and says, with this salt, I changed, you know, the empire or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's one of those immortal moments that Thoreau yes. talked about. Yes. Thoreau, no matter how small the beginning, making salt, an, an act well done is done forever. Uh, mm. um, so, mm. 
Stephen, this has been so fun and meaningful. For so me. much fun. So much. I knew it would be. <laughs> a part of me, like, and, and maybe I'll just put this out there. If everyone wants to, a part of me would happily spend, you know, go through each of these chapters and like explore the wisdom in, embedded in, in the steps here. And, and maybe I'll just read them really, like some of them briefly, right? Like, you know, first take refuge. Now listen for the inner voice. Look first in your own backyard. Look for the gift in the wound, right? Like each of these people that you explore has something to, for any of us who are sitting with the question, yeah, that's right. when I look out at this world, what can I do? Here are eight people who individually embody an answer to that question. And, and and to be really careful not to say, oh, I need to do what Sojourner Truth did, but rather I need to do what I'm to do. I need to find my center of the circle. And then collectively, you just have this like wonderful journey through all these different pieces of the answer to that question. So if you ever want to like talk through them in more depth, I would welcome that. <laughs> and you. I'm so glad we got to, to just play in this space. Uh, that's so sweet of you, Andy. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to see you. I haven't seen you in a couple of years now. Yeah. Since- yeah. Since we got went into lockdown. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, hello to all, all of your people out there. And, um, and maybe we'll do more of this. I hope so. Okay. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thanks, thanks everyone, for listening in. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.